Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Lyle Shelton, the National Director of the Family First Political Party. Now, political commentary is absolutely essential, and it is a privilege for me to be able to speak to you from a platform like ADH-TV. It is especially a privilege to do so amongst the incredible galaxy of voices that also stream from this platform. ADH-TV is one of the few safe spaces for conservatives and for people who believe our Western Judeo-Christian inheritance is the key to a brighter future. It's a perfect launch pad for the battle to take back our nation. Because we must fight the forces that are continually working to trash our cultural inheritance and hence our children's future. That's why I hope none of us stop at the place of merely consuming commentary and having our point of view validated or our sanity certified. For sure, there's a place for that. We all need some solace, especially in these crazy times. But we must do more than consume commentary. We must take political action. We must act political, politically in response to what we know to be true in the deepest part of our gut. In Australia, we are fortunate to still be free citizens with access to the tools of democracy. That's why I'm working day and night along with incredible volunteers and supporters right across this nation to build a political party and movement that will stand for family, freedom, faith and life. The Family First team wants these values on the ballot paper at every election, so we give ourselves the best chance of getting women and men into parliaments who will fight for you and for what we hold dear. I believe Family First has a unique value proposition. Of course, I would say that, but I acknowledge there are other good people and friends within the Liberals, Nationals and some of the minor parties who share many of your and my values. I'm committed to working with like-minded people wherever possible. My simple encouragement to all of us is that we act. Join the political party that best aligns with your values and get in the fight. The radical left have been fighting while many of us have been sleeping. We've woken up to find out that we've lost our nation. We're told men can get pregnant, our children's gender is fluid, and that the economy can run on solar panels and windmills, along with many other things that are simply not true. So by all means, enjoy today's show, or if you're listening on Spotify, enjoy the podcast. There's lots coming up. Shortly, I'll be speaking with the editor, the foreign editor of the Australian newspaper, Greg Sheridan, about the successful family-friendly policies of the Hungarian and Floridian governments. This is an opportunity not just to look at what's gone wrong, but, uh, but to have a look at policy, public policy that has been used to restore things that matter by courageous leaders who had the will and the courage. Don't let Australian politicians tell you there's no reward in engaging the culture wars. You won't want to miss my discussion with Greg shortly. I'll also speak with a young Muslim high school student from Melbourne, Khalid Hassan, who is fighting his school simply for a room in which to hold a lunchtime prayer meeting. His school rolls out the welcome mat for the LGBTIQA group, but discriminates against the religious groups. And my regular commentator on the pernicious war being waged by our politicians against girls and women Kiralee Smith will join me and give you and me the latest. But whatever you do today, as you watch or listen to the commentary, use this as fuel for the political action you will take. So sit back for now and don't touch that dial. The people who stand with me on this stage, I regard as giants. Thomas Mayo. Thomas Mayo. Thomas Mayo. Written a handbook called the Voice to Parliament Handbook. All the detail you need. Thomas Mayo is a signatory to the Uluru Statement from the Heart, but was also entrusted with the physical document. Mayo is part of the referendum working group. He spent 18 months travelling around Australia to garner support for an Indigenous voice to Parliament. And I tell you what, we are sick of governments not listening to our voice. We are going to use the rule book of the nation to force them. There is nothing more powerful than building a First Nations voice, a black institution, a black political force to be reckoned with. Keep going until we change the system, until we tear down the institutions that harm our people. And also to pay respects to the elders of the Communist Party, who I think uh, without a doubt have played a very important role in our activism. You know, this is the first step. It's a vital step. Pay the rent, for example. You know, how how do we do that in a way that is transparent and that it actually sees reparations and compensation to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? The power in the voice is that it creates the ability for First Nations to go forth with um, coherent um, positions on what legislation needs to be created, what legislation needs to be amended, and punish politicians that ignore our advice. This is a modest request.
Authorised by Matthew Sheehan, Advance Australia, Canberra. Now, like most fair-minded Australians, Family First supports recognising Indigenous people in the Constitution. This would correct an error and foster unity. But we can't support the voice. That's because it gives one race special powers in the Australian Constitution. Equality under the law is our Western inheritance and the basis for justice for all, regardless of race or creed. Little detail is known about the voice and its powers. Minister, what areas of public policy will not be within the scope of the voice? Order. The Leader of the Opposition will cease interjecting. The House will come to order. The Minister for Indigenous Australians has the call. Uh, can I thank the member opposite for her question? Um, and say that if she listened more carefully to the debate, she wouldn't have to answer that Order. question. In relation to, Order. In relation to uh, the role of the voice, we have been extraordinarily clear and we have listened to the aspirations of First Nations Australians uh, through an engagement group, through a working group, through many discussions on the ground in local communities, as well as the expert legal group. I have spoken at length with my colleagues and spoken at length with many people in this House. The answer to the question is that it is stated time and time again that the voice will concern itself with issues that directly affect First Nations people. Clear as mud. Uh, now, the working group the Minister for Indigenous Affairs, Linda Burney, just referenced in Parliament this week is the same working group that contains Thomas Mayo, the union official from the previous clip. He's the one who wrote the book on The Voice and says it will punish politicians who don't do what The Voice says, as he paid homage to communists, seemingly unaware that communist governments committed the worst genocides in history in terms of the sheer numbers of people killed. Mayo's assertion that the voice will punish politicians has all been denied this week by the Yes campaign, but we saw similar denials about the consequences of same-sex marriage when we were debating that plebiscite six years ago. What is known about the voice is that it will comprise a brand new chapter of Australia's rule book putting the voice on equal standing with the judiciary and the parliament itself. This is radical change. Now, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese refers anyone seeking detail about the voice to the Kalma Langton Voice co-design plan, which was overseen by Indigenous academics, Professor Dr. Marsha Langton AO and Professor Tom Kalma AO. Now, the Institute for Public Affairs think tank released its analysis of this 270-page report this week. It found that the Kalma Langton voice plan would potentially create an additional 850 new politicians, over 4,000 political staffers, at an annual wages bill in excess of 600 million. Now that's half the annual hospital budget in the Northern Territory. It also found that the Kalma Langton plan proposes that the new voice politicians would be determined by local communities, which means closed shop nepotism would be rife. In terms of the voice's powers, it is known that if parliament or the executive government chose not to heed the voice, activists would have recourse to the high court. That's because the voice is a chapter of the constitution, which the high court oversees. The voice's Entrenchment in the rule book of the nation means any disputes about its powers go straight to the High Court to be determined not by elected parliamentarians, but by unelected judges. Unelected judges would interpret this new chapter of the Constitution and could make rulings which override the Parliament. Proponents even admit nothing will be beyond the remit of the voice because everything the executive and the parliament does has implications for Indigenous people, just as it does for every other Australian excluded from the voice. For example, Linda Burney told parliament this week that the voice would not have the power to advise on changing Australia Day. 
She was contradicted almost immediately by the Yes campaign, which said it would have the power to advise on changing Australia Day. The voice will be more powerful than the average member of parliament. Former Deputy Prime Minister John Anderson, an opponent of The Voice, wrote in The Weekend Australian that The Voice was part of the Uluru Statement designed to create a treaty which in turn created self-determination for Indigenous people. Inseparable from The Voice to Parliament is the question of a treaty. And treaties very often involve the establishment of separate autonomous Indigenous territories with massive taxpayer funding. Certainly, this has been the case with Australian discussions of a treaty. Now, remember, on election night when Anthony Albanese was elected Prime Minister, he said from the victory podium that he was committed to the voice and implementing the Uluru Statement from the Heart in full. Clearly, the voice is a package deal which includes a treaty for self-determination and sovereignty over which people and which land is unclear. John Anderson urges Australians to familiarise themselves with the Uluru Statement. He is highly critical of it because it declares that Indigenous Australians are powerless and that constitutional reforms are the only way to empower our people. Anderson questions the very need for the voice. It is, though, misleading to suggest that Indigenous Australians currently have no voice to Parliament when each Indigenous Australian has an equal vote to anyone else. And importantly, each state and territory has a Minister for Aboriginal Affairs and federally we have a Minister for Indigenous Affairs. These portfolios liaise directly with many Indigenous stakeholders. Indigenous Australians, like all Australians, have many voices to Parliament already. Now, another critic of The Voice, uh, veteran political journalist at The Australian, Dennis Shanahan, observed that Voice proponents were no longer mentioning the V word, preferring to focus on recognition. If only the referendum, likely to be held in October, uh, had recognition on the ballot. That would sail through, such is the goodwill of non-Indigenous Australians towards our Indigenous brothers and sisters. Anderson is worried the voice will become a platform for perpetual grievance until a treaty is enacted. The question of changing the date of Australia Day gets far more media attention than the horrific rates of domestic violence and child abuse in remote communities. Now, the Parliament voted on the referendum enabling legislation this week. Uh, we're off to a referendum, as I said, most likely in October. Expect to hear lots about recognition and little about the voice, its powers and the activists' ultimate agenda for a separate nation. I am here to tell you that our values, the nation, Christian roots and family can be successful in the political battlefield. We made these values successful and mainstream in Hungary. Now, at a time when the deputy Liberal leader, Susan Lay, is warning Liberals to stay out of the culture wars as if they don't exist or are not important, Conservative politicians in other parts of the world are taking them on and winning. The Australian newspaper's foreign editor, Greg Sheridan, has written recently about the family-friendly policies of Florida in the United States and the Central European country of Hungary. Greg Sheridan joins me now. Greg, thanks so much for giving of your time today. Great to be with you, Lyle. Great to see you. Greg, you write that uh, these jurisdictions, Hungary and Florida, don't discriminate against anyone or violate the human rights of minorities, but they proactively promote heterosexual marriage, the truth about gender and the pro-life cause. Greg, I want to know why are their leaders, Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida and President Viktor Orban in Hungary, taking this approach at a time when elites everywhere in the West are so hostile to these timeless values? Well, I'll, um, I'd put it even a bit wider than Florida and Hungary. I think Poland is in the same category very strongly. And I think the in Western Europe, you're seeing a resurgence of uh, conservative parties, um, Georgia Maloney in Italy in particular, but also uh, throughout the rest of Western Europe, parties that used to be classified as far right um, have become mainline conservative parties and work hard on family values although they're limited by the European Union in what they can do. 
But I do think uh, Western liberals have this insane view that unless you embrace all the social values of San Francisco, you're the Taliban. Now, um, uh, Australian liberals often talk about Asia, but they never listen to Asia. So, you know, countries like Indonesia and uh, Malaysia and so on, um, uh, and Japan, for that matter, have uh, have a lot of similar policies to Ron DeSantis and uh, Victor Orban. Uh, now, I think they want to... Uh, give expression to um, an identity which is which is different from left liberalism, which is conscious of the Christian roots of Western civilization, uh, and which promotes the traditional family. Uh, but at the same time, as I say, there's no, there's no uh, adverse discrimination. Homosexuality is not remotely illegal in Hungary or anything like that. There are gay pride marches in Budapest and so on. But what they say is you can't, you can't run this, um, uh, as an educational program in schools, and you can't run it on daytime TV. Now, I think in the in the uh, they're getting a lot of support for this, and I think in the great um, you know uh, family of Western values, there is surely uh, room for conservatives as well as for left liberals. Yeah, it's certainly very encouraging, um, Greg. And as you say, there's, there's other countries like Poland and, and Italy. Um, but uh, it, it would seem like our uh, media, our academia, they try and paint these views as if they're somehow, um, you know, as you say, far right or, or even fascist, um, neo-Nazi. These sort of terms are, are bandied around. But that's, um, that's really not a fair characterisation of these leaders, is it? No, it isn't. So... Um, uh I think Hungary and Poland in particular are ludicrously demonised in the Western media. Uh, Hungary uh, has uh, clean elections. You know, the state-owned media is a bit pro the government. There's no doubt about that, just as the state-owned media in most Western societies is reliably left liberal all the time about everything. Um, but they are clean elections. The electoral law means you can get a majority with a plurality of the vote. So if you get 45% of the vote, you might get a big majority. But that's exactly the same as in Britain. I mean, what what, the, what did the Labor Party get in Australia as a primary vote? 30, 35% or something. And it won a majority of the seats in the parliament. So that's absolutely routine. Uh, Orban got into trouble recently for saying he doesn't want uh, Hungary to become um, a diverse uh, society. He wants it to remain mainly homogeneous. Now, that's exactly the same decision as Japan has taken, as Korea has taken. We don't regard that as racist and wicked. Now, while as it happens in the Australian context, I'm pro-immigration and I'm pro a racially non-discriminatory immigration program, but not every country in the world has to be that way. So you can migrate to Hungary, but he doesn't want mass migration and he particularly doesn't want mass migration uh, of illegal immigrants from North Africa and the Middle East. Now, I think that's a, a reasonable position. You, you've got to observe people's human rights. You know, you can't machine gun anybody on the border or anything like that, but Hungary doesn't do anything like that. Uh, but because they reject the Western consensus, especially the European Union consensus and what you might call the New York Times, LA Times consensus, they, they are painted as fascist. Well, that, that's just absurd. That is just absurd. Hungary and Poland are democracies like the rest of Western Europe who have chosen a different path. And it shows how co coercive and intolerant left liberalism has become that they paint these governments as fascist. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, it would seem like instead of debating the merits of their public policy, they, they just try and demonise them to try and make what they're doing seem untouchable. But um, let's look at some of the specific policies. Um, uh, here in Australia, of course, Liberal and Labor politicians allow children to be indoctrinated into radical LGBT gender fluid ideology at school and then funneled into these child gender clinics uh, to have harmful, irreversible experimental therapies performed on them. Your articles explain that uh, in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis has taken a very different approach to helping children who, who might be struggling with their gender identity issues. Can you outline uh, some of his approach? Well, essentially, he has um, he's tried to keep uh, that kind of ideology out of schools. So you can't do um, LGBTQI ideology propaganda in Florida schools, and you can't do um, 
critical race theory propaganda in Florida schools, and he has also made it a bit easier to found independent schools. So a huge problem in America is the teachers' unions, which enforce ideological conformity and also uh, enforce very bad work practices and great inefficiencies and so on. Now, it's hard to, it's hard to break the power of the teachers' unions, and they are very destructive. But one good approach is to make uh, the creation of independent schools, uh, which are responsive to parents' needs directly, a bit easier. So Ron DeSantis is fascinating to me because he understands in a way that few conservatives do that the left has taken control of almost all the institutions in society. And he has a program for taking back control of institutions, neutralising the left where he can, making the institutions, um, you know, non-political where they should be. So he's not, you know, in Florida schools, you're not you're not given uh, compulsory, you know, Christian education in, you know, Christian views of the family or something. He's just said that LGBTQI um, propaganda uh, can't be taught to kids. And um, at the same time, he's made it easier for parents to found, to found their own schools. Well, I think that's a pretty good approach from a conservative leader. And it contrasts with the Liberal Party in Australia, which has not said boo on education for the last 10 years. All the 10 years they were in office federally and in all the governments they held uh, at the state level, they made no challenge at all to the complete ideological hegemony of the left over our education um, system. And Lyle, if you indulge me for one second, one of the biggest reactions I ever got to anything I ever wrote in newspapers was an article in 1985 I wrote on the front page of the Australian called The Lies They Teach Our Children, which was all about the propaganda that was being fed to our kids even then. Got a huge reaction, but no Liberal did anything about it. And we've been having a rotten education system now for four decades or more. And this has indoctrinated kids and therefore young adults and now, you know, even middle-aged people into a um, into a left liberal view of the whole of the human condition. Absolutely, Greg. Look, that's, of course, exactly why I'm so interested in what you've been writing about the success of these leaders uh, overseas uh, who, who have a strategic program, as you say, to take on this uh, left long march through our institutions and including our schools. I'm also interested in the, in the tax policy um, uh, as, a, as a way to uh, encourage the, the family, the mothering and fathering. Um, Hungary has introduced family-friendly tax policy, uh, you write, uh, including generous tax breaks for women who have a certain number of children. Uh, what's been the public's response to this? And has there been a backlash from feminists who oppose the idea of women choosing uh, the idea of working in the home? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what's happened, Lyle. So one of the, one of the things that Western uh, nations governments and bureaucracies criticise about Hungary is that they actually give women generous benefits to have kids and be at home with them if they like. Now, the, the Hungarian people, they love this policy. They love this policy. Oddly enough, the Howard Costello government, which had a pro-family policy for a little while, a pro-birth policy for a little while. Remember, Peter Costello said, have three kids instead of two, one for mum, one for dad and one for the country. Now, that's one of the very rare cases where a Western government actually was successful in getting a, a slight uptick in the birth rate. Now, in, in Hungary, you get uh, substantial subsidies the more kids you have. And if you have enough kids, you ultimately get uh, very good housing loans and, um, and very big tax cuts. Now, it seems to me completely crackers that Western feminism hates this policy because it gives families choice. Uh, so Western feminism is not about women having choice. It's about coercing women into the workforce, whether they want to be there or not. Now, of course, everybody uh, wants women to have the freedom to be anywhere in the workforce they like, obviously. But wanting women to have the freedom to stay at home with their kids if they want to which is not a dull occupation, but it's a wildly challenging occupation to provide all the education and all the stimulus and the care and love and nurturing for, for your own kids. That also ought to be an option 
which the state facilitates. And we used to have policies like that in Australia, child endowment and so forth. The Liberals used to have a policy, which they never implemented, of trying to make the tax-free threshold available uh, twice to, to families which had a stay-at-home a stay-at-home mum. So they could get, uh, so dad's income could be split in two so that the couple got the double use of the tax-free threshold. They never implemented that, but that would have made a big difference. Um, you've got to be a bit careful that these policies don't end up uh, benefiting very wealthy people disproportionately, but th those are design challenges more than anything. But the idea that the state is going to encourage you to have kids, and Hungary has been successful in raising its birth rate it's still not as high as it would like it to be. I still don't think it's quite at replacement level, but it's higher than most Western nations and it's higher than it was. And these policies, far from being coercive, they are immensely popular with Hungarian families. So, so Greg, why do you think it is then um, that our politicians here in Australia won't even have a discussion about getting rid of the ideology out of the schools, about family-friendly tax policies. It's not even part of our political discourse. Yet Florida, Hungary, Italy, Poland, you know, these are nations that are influenced by all the same leftist ideology, yet they seem to have courageous leaders willing to take it on. Why don't we have that here, do you think? It's a very good question, Lyle. Uh, I, I don't like to be always beating up on the Liberal Party, but you'd have to say there has been a tremendous failure, uh, tremendous intellectual failure on the part of the Liberals both federally and at the state level. So they were in office for 10 years federally, and all they did really was implement uh, left-of-centre policies, implement Labor's policies. I mean, they they would give jobs to their mates, but they made no effort to shape institutions with a worldview which is sympathetic to traditional values. So I'm not saying they should have put Liberal Party apparatchiks on all the government institutions, you take the climate matter, for example. Tony Abbott wanted to set up a climate institute under Bjorn Lomborg, which would have focused on the economic costs and benefits of climate action. The universities were against it, and then his government was so internally divided that they just dropped the idea when no university would take it up. Well, a, a more assertive conservative uh, movement than the Liberals would have simply set it up as a freestanding institution, given it $100 million a year. And then all of a sudden, you would have all this intellectual material being generated by a government body, which had a worldview, you know, sympathetic to conservatives. Um, the The Productivity Commission is about as close as the Liberals ever got to, to a body like that. And it has a purely economic focus, of course. John Howard, whom I admire without reservation, I admire him enormously. But he made an effort to change the history curriculum in Australia, and it failed. Ultimately, he felt that he had to have, you know, enough um, basically left of centre academics on his commission, and then, you know, it had no real power, and it didn't do anything to change the destructive view of, uh, of Australian and world history, which is in our schools. We haven't done enough as Conservatives to create our own institutions, although the independent school movement and the Christian school movement is a terrific, uh, very, very encouraging sign. And our Conservative uh, side of politics is just hopeless when it comes to understanding institutional power. I mean, take a more trivial case. I don't criticise any of the individuals who are named Australian of the Year under the Liberals, but the Liberals and Nationals controlled that committee, controlled the appointment of that committee for 10 years, and year after year after year, it appointed people who ended up campaigning against the Liberal National Government uh, and, and promoting a worldview which was hostile to theirs. Now, there's a level of, uh, of sheer, both of political cowardice, but also of sheer incompetence uh, in, in that sort of... Um, and the final thought, Lyle, is the our Conservatives try to get into office by being a more competent version of the other side they almost never seriously contest the other side. And then when they do, it's very, very seldom, and it might be at one minute to before the election. So Liberals were in office for 10 years. One minute before the election, we got talk about a religious freedom bill. So what, what have they been doing for 10 years? And, of course, people then, they haven't won the argument. People can see that it's kind of fraudulent and hollow and meaningless, 
and um, and so the society uh, drifts away. But eventually, if there's enough of a conservative um, uptick in other societies, we will uh, we will follow it. Uh, you know, our conservatives will get the idea eventually. You would think. Well, that's right, Greg, and that's why I think the articles you're writing are so important because it's helping people see that conservatives can fight and can win in Western countries, and that's why discussions like today are so important, and let's hope it inspires that more assertive leadership. Greg, uh, before you go, I can't let you go without asking your opinion on the US uh, presidential election, uh, whether you think Ron DeSantis can prevail over Donald Trump in the uh, Republican primaries. Well, Lyle... um I certainly hope so. Uh, so there's a big split amongst conservatives and how they view Donald Trump. I'll tell you honestly, and you know, every one of your viewers may detest me for this, but I'll tell you honestly, I think Trump is is an utterly despicable person, and his conduct after he lost the election was so disgraceful and so bizarre and so dishonest that he's not fit to be president. At the same time, the Bidens are no better, uh, or, or not much better. Um, Biden hasn't done quite the same things as Trump did, so I'd I, I qualify that. But, you know, the sleaze and dishonesty uh, around the Biden family is, an, is a, a terrible stench. The, the misuse of the legal process to try to rule Trump out of, uh, out of contention, I think Trump should be defeated at the ballot box. America needs to move on beyond Trump and Biden. I would love it if there was a contest at the next American election between, say, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, and Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, two really contrasting visions of how America should run. Now, I, I don't think DeSantis is a saint or anything, but he's a successful governor. He behaves decently, doesn't tell lies, he doesn't traffic in hatred the way Trump does, and he truly implements conservative values. I think it would be almost impossible for the Democrats to beat someone like DeSantis in an election. And I think one reason the Democrats have pushed all this legal stuff on Trump is not to destroy him, but to make sure he stays at the centre of attention and draws all the Republican votes to him. The way the polls are at the moment, it looks like he's going to win the Republican nomination. But it is still very early days. Carl Rove had a piece in the Wall Street Journal the other day showing how much primary polls can change. But it's bad for America and bad for the world if we end up with another Trump-Biden choice. And I'd love to see DeSantis or some other credible conservative um, at the head of the ticket. DeSantis is interesting because a lot of American presidents have been state governors, whereas, of course, Trump had no experience in government at all, as, as was evident. And state governors are good because they've run governments They've implemented programs. They've tried to balance budgets. You can see what their record is. And uh, uh, DeSantis would be very well prepared for the presidency, former congressman and governor of Florida. And uh, I think it would be a great thing for the worldwide conservative movement if uh, a credible conservative like DeSantis was the candidate. Can he do it? He's still got a chance, absolutely. But the Democrats are making sure that Trump is the only topic of conversation because they want the next election not to be a referendum on Biden, but to be a referendum on Trump. They think that's their best chance of victory. No, very good, Greg. Look, I certainly agree with you. I think DeSantis has shown us uh, a model uh, that I would love to see replicated here in Australia. I'd love to see some leadership uh, in that vein. Uh, Greg Sheridan, I really appreciate you giving of your time and, and sharing those insights and inspiring us about what could be uh, for our nation. Thanks so much for your time. Lyle, a real pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much. Women's sports are being threatened. Some women are being forced to play against biological men. Women's college athletic teams are being threatened. Collegiate records that women set are being threatened. Women's sports, women's records, women's teams, women's dressing rooms, all are jeopardized when men are allowed to compete for those teams, for those titles, for those records. 
Well, joining me now for our regular update on the war against girls and women is Kiralee Smith of Binary. Kiralee, what we just saw there was Governor Greg Abbott of Texas, a jurisdiction with a bigger population than Australia, this week signing into law a bill to protect girls and women's sports. Why can't we have that here? Oh, the mind boggles, Lyle, that there is no one willing to stand up and protect girls and women. We know uh, that this is happening in this country. We know that women and girls are facing sanctions and even legal action uh, if we speak out against our males or male bodies in female sport. We know that our, you know, Olympians and Commonwealth Game champions like Deborah Ackerson uh, don't compete in the Masters Championships because the records are now held by biological males. So this is happening all around the country and it's really disheartening that there's such political appetite to do anything about it. Yeah, politicians are just weak. And in fact, Australia is actually going in the, the opposite direction. <laughs> Again, the other breaking news this week was the chairman of the Australian Sports Commission, Kieran Perkins, a former Olympic swimmer, gold medalist himself, is, is taking our nation, uh, yeah, as I say, in the, in the opposite direction. Uh, tell us the latest about his guidelines. Yeah, well, the um, Oz Sport or the Australian Institute of Sport, uh, led by Kieran Perkins, have put out uh, a, a big document uh, basically, that the nutshell is it favours men who think that they're women or imagine that they would like to be women over actual women. And so they're uh, really pushing for policies for inclusion of these males in female sport, but it's at the exclusion of actual female athletes. And female athletes and coaches and officials have been uh, warned fairly sternly within the document not to complain, not to oppose uh, the policies and that this is the direction they want to go. Yeah, well, you know, no surprises that Hannah Mouncey thought it was a good idea and uh, got favourable publicity in the Sydney Morning Herald welcoming Perkins' decision. Uh, remind our audience who Hannah Mouncey is for those who don't know. Hannah Mouncey is an Australian male-bodied athlete, a rather large male-bodied athlete who uh, was first made known or we became aware of because he was wanting to compete in the women's AFL league, uh, but he has represented Australia in handball uh, in the women's team and it's it's been, there's been a lot of controversy around this and Again, women uh, don't feel safe. It's not fair. Uh, they don't want to share their change rooms with such athletes. And uh, there's very little that we can do about it. Yeah, well, shame on Kieran Perkins and the Australian Sports Commission for releasing these guidelines for elite athletes. The only winners are the Hannah Mounseys of this world. Um, it's just uh, unbelievable. But uh, that's what—that's a word we use a lot uh, when you and I talk each week. Now, um, Kiralee, the Hobart City Council is the latest uh, body where elected people can't work out whether they are Arthur or Martha. What happened and how hard is it for people governing a big city like Hobart to know the difference between male and female? Uh, this is staggering, Lyle. So Louise Elliott, a fantastic woman, uh, put forward a motion to protect girls and women who basically want to have these conversations about women's sex-based rights, about the protection and safeguarding for girls uh, and for women, adult women, in lots of different spaces and services that Hobart City Council provide. And uh, that motion was voted down six councillors are voted against women being having a safe place to have this conversation, this debate, that they can't bring up these issues with council. It is absolutely mind-boggling stuff that they would want to censure and, and silence women in, in this way. Yeah, the madness just keeps uh, keeps on rolling along. Now, now, Kiralee, we know that Victorian Labor Premier Daniel Andrews is a very unsavoury person. In Parliament, Andrews called Liberal Cindy McLeish a half-wit grub. Uh, Andrews later withdrew the comments under pressure from the opposition. But the Victorian Liberal leader, John Pesuto, he went and held a media conference to, to cash in on what Andrews uh, had done in, in terms of abusing McLeish. And he tweeted this. He said, I was proud to stand with Sydney McLeish along with other Liberal Nationals colleagues after the Premier's unacceptable abuse of her in Parliament today. Uh, and he cited off uh, JP for John Pesuto. Now, Kiralee, does this man have no self-awareness whatsoever, given his abuse of Moira Deeming? It is so offensive. Of course, we should stand with Cindy and other women who are so terribly maligned by Daniel Andrews and other um, people in Parliament. But John Pesuto has 
smeared and defamed people like Maura Deeming and Angie Jones by calling them Nazi sympathisers and just horrific uh, slurs that now these women have to fight. They have to go into a legal battle. They're constantly trying to clear their name. They're uh, facing abuse, uh, non-stop abuse on social media, and uh, and he can stand up there in this self-righteous manner that he's done the right thing. Well, no, thank you, John. We can see right through you. Absolutely. Um, I, I would submit, while Daniel Andrews' abuse was terrible, um, Pseudo's abuse is far worse. Um, Kiralee, um, you're speaking at an event. Um, this will have, uh, by the time we go to air, it will have occurred. Uh, we're, we're recording just ahead of it. It's quite exciting. Uh, tell us about what's happening at the New South Wales Parliament this week. Yeah, well, I'm about to go across and meet a fantastic group of women who are standing up and speaking out for uh, biological sex in Australia, whether it's in sport or other services. And, uh, you know, we just mentioned Moira Deeming and Angie Jones. They'll both be speaking at this event. Catherine Deves, Sal Grover, uh, who's in the federal court trying to, uh, you know, we know that sex and gender identity are both protected characteristics, but they're adults with each other. So um, Louise Elliott, who we also mentioned in this program today, she'll be there. Uh, Holly Lawford-Smith, myself. So it's going to be a great lineup. We are going to um, unashamedly and unapologetically uh, defend women's sex-based rights. And we know that there'll be a bunch of men and their friends outside Parliament House, no doubt, screaming obscenities, calling us transphobes because they don't want us to speak out and they want to enforce the lie on us that they are now women. Well, we won't accept that lie and we will not be intimidated into silence. Absolutely. And I just want to say yeah. sorry, thanks to John Ruddick for hosting this event. Uh, it's really wonderful that he can see the value in this and has made this opportunity uh, for us to do that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Kiralee. John Ruddick's a terrific uh, addition to the New South Wales Upper House following the, the March election. Kiralee, I'm looking forward to being there in the audience supporting uh, all of you courageous women. And we'll make sure that next week on this show, on this segment, uh, you and I will uh, give our audience a, a debrief of all that's happened. Kiralee, thank you so much for being with us again today. Thanks for having me, Lyle. Well, now to a story about the all too common double standards we are seeing when it comes to freedom of religion and freedom of association. This involves a courageous year 12 student, Khalid Hassan, from Craigieburn Secondary College in Melbourne. Khalid is a devout Muslim and he's decided to fight back against what he sees as blatant, as blatant religious discrimination. And I agree with him. Now, I'm not a Muslim, I'm a Christian, but I believe in freedom of religion. It is Western countries like Australia, based on our Judeo-Christian ethos, that provide the greatest measure of freedom by far. History proves this hands down, despite the imperfections of our Western nations. That's why people from all corners of the globe want to come and live in a place like Australia. And they are welcome, provided they come in an orderly manner and a legal manner. Now, in contrast, many Muslim nations, unfortunately, uh, I would not be allowed in those nations to practice my Christian faith openly. And in some Muslim nations like Libya, I could be put to death uh, or put on death row simply for being a Christian. But in Australia, it's not like that. Although, uh, it never used to be like that. Now we're seeing more and more pressure coming on religious freedom, uh, hopefully not putting people on death row, but there's definitely pressure that's mounting. We are seeing Muslim and Christians routinely discriminated against in ways that other identity groups are not. Joining me now to discuss this is Khalid Hassan. Khalid, welcome to the program. Khalid, Thank uh, you for having me. It's, it's great to have you, Khalid. Khalid, uh, please tell our audience what happened when you asked Craigieburn Secondary College for a room in which to hold a lunchtime prayer meeting. Well, when I had asked the principal initially, she had given permission to allow us to conduct and run a student-run religious room, which was open to both Muslims and Christians. And that was until... Thursday, the 1st of July, when the assistant principal had walked in and started yelling at students to get out. And had and she had gone into one of the teacher's offices to have a conversation with one of the teaching staff that was there that present with us. Thankfully, we were able to gain access into the designated space shortly after. However, she had returned to yell more and heavily disturbed those who were praying. Well, Khalid, let's, uh, let's just get this straight now. Let's just get this straight now. 
Let's just get this straight now, Khalid. Yeah. So initially you were given permission to, to hold a lunchtime uh, religious meeting, a prayer meeting, uh, and then an assistant principal came in uh, after you'd been given yeah. permission and started yelling at you. Why, why did she do that? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not too sure on her why she had exactly done that. She believed that it was due to active supervision. However, there were teaching staff there that were present. And, well, to most of us, it felt more like religious bias mm. because she is one of the assistant principals who runs the groups such as LGBTQ. And well, it felt as if it was very targeted. So she, she as an assistant principal, um, was happy to provide supervision and be involved in the LGBTIQA plus group at your school, but then objected when you held yep. a... Uh, a religious uh, gathering uh, during during lunchtime, I take it. Yep. Yep. And she, she had even admitted to ripping down the posters which promoted the room. Yeah, that's extraordinary. So um, this this was obviously happening last year. This has been going on for some time. Uh, but you recently then decided to... Oh, yeah, it's been going on for years now. Yep, yep. So you recently decided to um, hold a protest uh, to raise awareness about this discrimination uh, at the State Library of Victoria in Swanson Street in Melbourne. It's a, it's a common place where lots of people go to, to make public protests. What happened at that event? Well, we went there to express our religious freedoms and we even had signs that said, hashtag protect religious freedoms and the LGBT community from our school ended up going to the going to the protest and they started violently like assaulting us in some cases where they were actually grabbing people and trying to put them in chokeholds they were chasing people out of there and calling us every name under the sun and i had to actually end the protest due to the fear of violence being escalated so so this wasn't a, a large protest as i understand it it was a small group of, um, of religious yes. uh, students, Muslim students like yourself. Um, how many LGBTIQA plus um, counter-protesters turned up? And, and, and were they people who were known to you? There were around 30 of them. So they, uh, it was a two to one kind of ratio. And I knew only a small amount of them. The rest, I did not know who they were and I'm pretty sure they didn't even go to our school. So it seemed like um, some from your school came to this counter-protest and they brought others from, uh, I guess, the political activist community to try and um, drown out your uh, demonstration. Yes. Yeah. Now, now, now Khalid, you've received um, uh, recently a letter from the Victorian Department of Education saying that they have indeed now identified a room for you at your high school. Um, are, are you now able to exercise your religious freedom uh, at school in the same way the LGBTIQA plus uh, group is allowed to exercise their freedom of association? Uh, no, we're not. Um, the room was given to us for a day and then the school has in their full attempt tried to avoid giving us a room. Yet, you know, the Department of Education has said the prayer room has been identified as the investigation was conducted by the principal themselves. Hmm. But it seems like there's a lack of will at your school to actually uh, make good that yes. uh, directive from the education department. Yeah. Why, why do you think there's such intolerance uh, to, to Muslims and, and Christians? I understand there's a Christian group at your school as well. Um, th so the religious groups yeah. are not getting a fair go, uh, but um, the LGBTIQA plus uh, group uh, is given you know, f all the space they want and, and um, high level assistance. Yep. Um, personally, I believe it's due to a multitude of factors, with uh, the first being how we're represented in the media, where anyone of religion or conservative-based views, whether traditional or modern, is given labels such as fascist, Nazi, white supremacist, and oppressors. Um, and those labels are actually given to us at school by uh, members of the LGBT community. Yeah. And there's another issues like how we've abused the equality and diversity and we now have those who are 
LGBTQ or heavily left-wing and heavily against religion who are able to make any policies at the school and get permission faster than we're allowed to have any permission to do like the prayer rooms. Yep. Yeah. Well, and the school also claims to be safe and diverse. Oh, sorry. No, no, that, that, that's, um, you're, you're absolutely right, Khalid. They, they do claim this safety and diversity, but uh, uh, it seems like diversity and tolerance is a one-way street. Khalid, I, I really want to thank you for your courage in standing up uh, for freedom of religion and, and freedom of association. These are two really important freedoms. And, uh, you know, you're a year 12 student. I think it takes a lot of uh, guts and courage. And uh, I really appreciate you joining me today to shine a light on this issue. And uh, we'll continue to follow uh, your progress. Thanks so much, Khalid. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, before I go, we must not forget this. The Catholic Church in the Australian Capital Territory is in the fight of its life against the unjust seizure of its property, the Calvary Hospital. This week, former Prime Minister John Howard entered the fray. And sometimes, and sometimes people say to me, oh, why do you lot keep banging on about the fundamental principles of liberalism? They're not under attack in this country. Can I tell you, there's, they're very seriously under attack at the moment in the Australian Capital Territory. Can I say this attempt by the ACT government to grab from the Catholic Church the Calvary Hospital in, in the ACT is about as blatant an assault on the principle of private property ownership that I've seen in this country for many, many years. The seriousness of this fight cannot be understated. If the ACT government gets away with this, no one is safe, particularly religions who refuse to dance to the woke tune of militantly secularist government like Labor in the ACT. And remember, Anthony Albanese is backing Labor Chief Minister Andrew Barr's takeover of this hospital. This is not just the Catholics' fight. Martin Niemöller, the, the dissident uh, German Lutheran pastor, famously said this, First, they came for the socialist, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Today, it might be a Catholic hospital which refuses, rightly, to kill unborn babies and other vulnerable people at the behest of an aggressively secularist bar government. Tomorrow, it might be your Christian school because it rightly refuses to let biological males wear a dress to the school formal or enter the girls' toilets. Please go to savecalvary.com.au and sign the petition today. That's savecalvary.com.au. Let it not be said of us that we did not speak at this time in our nation's history. Well, that's all I have time for today. Don't forget to make ADHTV your go-to for political analysis. It is the home of Australia's leading conservative voices, including Alan Jones, Damien Curry, Alexandra Marshall, Daisy Cousins, Fred Paul, Nick Cater, Dave Pellow, and many others. I post regular political commentary at the Family First blog. Go to familyfirstparty.org.au. You can also find me on Twitter at Lyle Shelton, Facebook and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday at 12 noon. Uh, but the show, as always, is available on demand on the ADH TV website and app. And the podcast is on Spotify. Thanks so much for your company. Until next week, keep speaking up.